Hi, I'm Derek Jensen. This is Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network. My guest today is Keith Harmon Snow. He's a writer, photographer, and naturalist. This is his second program with me focused on rare cats of the world. In 1993, he exposed a high-level racket in Japan involving trade in endangered species. Today, we talk about the endangered wildcats of Japan. So first off, thank you for your work in the world. Second, thank you for being on the program. I appreciate it, Derek. You're having me on the second time. It's fascinating to me. Thank you. Well, my plan is for us to work our way through various endangered wildcats around the world. Um, and then we can go on to talk about other things. You know, I, I think cats, uh, I, I was probably a cat is my spirit, spirit animal. And I think I was probably a cat in a previous life. If people believe in that thing, I do. And uh, it's definitely been one of my passions, but it hasn't been what I've pursued more than other things. So when I found out, for example, what I mean by that is when I found out that, you know, human rights are essential to making sure that some species, a lot of species survive, unless we address some of the human issues, I focused, I had to shift off of the, my concern and focus on endangered species onto some of the greater issues that are causing these endangered species to be endangered. Right, right. That makes sense. Um, so for today, uh, can you introduce us to the uh, Irimota cat and the Tsushima cat? Because people may not have heard of them, and I hadn't heard of them until you brought them up. Yeah, you know, I, I'm passionate about cats, and so these I fell in love with these little, these two little wildcats when I was in learned about them in Japan. They're so rare; almost no one has ever seen them. In fact, the the Iriomote wildcat on Iriomote Island is uh, Iriomote is just it's it's far south west of Japan proper, Honshu, and it's at the end of the Okinawa. Uh, island chain and island group in a smaller set of islands where Iriomote is one of the bigger islands in this smaller group off of Taiwan. So it's quite far from Japan proper, which is part of the reason why the Iriomote wildcat is so interesting and different in a certain certain ways and also so rare. And the Tsushima wildcat exists on Tsushima Island, which now is two islands. Uh, it split, the island split because of the formation of some sort of a canal um, 100 years or 200 years ago, something like that. And the the uh, the two islands of Tsushima, Tsushima Islands, those are up just between Honshu, Japan proper, and Korea. So each one of these, and, and of course, Japan has quite a few islands, and these are the only two Cats, only two places, and the only two cats you'll find in Japan. The Iriomote wild, let's talk about the their similarities first, actually. So their similarities are that they're both subspecies of a wild cat, which is more common to mainland Asia, China in particular, but also, you know, distrib distribution is, is as far as, um, for example, Northern Pakistan, uh, Tajikistan, all the way down through uh, across the top of of India, but not in India, except for the southwest coast of India, and then uh, and then all the way down to to uh, Singapore through Thailand and Malaysia, and then includes Vietnam, Cambodia, and then all the way up to northern Korea, and even parts of South. 
eastern Russia. So that's the this is where the Iriamote and Tsushima wildcats come from. They come from a a, a species known as Bengalensis, the leopard cat. And there's five members of the um in terms of the taxonomy, the Prionellurus. You've got uh, the Prionellurus has five subcats, five cats in it. One of them is the leopard cat, Bengalensis. Bengalensis has two subspecies. One of them is Tsushima and one of them is the Iriamote. And the divergence of these cats, and what at first in 1965 or 67, when the Iriamote cat was first discovered, it, people on the island and the population at the time was around 2,000 people on, on Iriamote, which is only a couple hundred square kilometers uh, coastline of, you know, maybe 150 miles or something like that. And there there was only like 2,000 people there and they knew there was a cat in the forest. People, some, and the people in this part of on on Irimote Island are very remote. This is a very remote island, and at the time in 1965, it was much much more remote. And uh, they did know that there was a cat in the forest, and they had names for it. They called it the uh, the eyes of the forest. And Yamaneko is one of the names that the Japanese use for the Irimote wildcat. So they knew it was there, but hardly ever saw it unless it got caught in one of the traps. Uh, by or or was hunted and 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 caught in the process of hunting, but not shot. It was always caught in a trap during the process of hunting. But but even these sightings of the Irimote cat were extremely extremely rare. So this thing lived like a ghost on the island, and the people knew it was there. And in '65, someone, because of the rumors, someone came down from mainland from uh, from the main island and and did a search and started a process of trying to discover what it was. And that's they they learned about a big so-called big cat on Iriamote. But the Iriamote wildcat is pretty much the same size as your large general domestic cat, uh, meaning that it's like somewhere between 19 and 24, 25 inches in length and gets up to maybe 10 or 11 pounds for the larger ones. So it's not as big as a bobcat or certainly not as big as a lynx, but and and bigger than your domestic general domestic cat, but not much. And the Tsushima wildcat is similar. It's it's a little smaller than Iriamote cat, but it's basically the same. And they look like a tabby. They 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 look like uh, a spot a small spotted cat. They have a little bit longer skull than than a general domestic cat. They're very cute, very sweet. You you see them and you're like, oh my god, I want one of those. <laughs> so the uh, Iriamote cat was discovered in '65, and one of the people who did the early research in trying to find the cat to prove that it actually existed in all this in the '60s put up posters and and put up a reward, a hundred dollars for a or a, well, it was equivalent to about a hundred dollars for a a cat at the time that was alive and $30 if it was dead. And soon enough, people started producing carcasses. I think it had a negative effect. In fact, they may have actually gone to extremes to try to catch some of these cats. So there's never been more than 200 Iriamote, and there's never been more than 100. Well, maybe there were, I take that back. How do I know such things? It's quite possible that there were way more than 200 Iriamote wildcats. But since they've been discovered, the population has pretty much fluctuated around 100, 100 members of, 
a hundred specimens, a hundred, what's the word I want? <laughs> hundred cats in the wild. And the Tsushima wildcat, when I was in Japan in the, in the early nineties, there was about 70 Tsushima wildcats. And they say the number is up to about a hundred. However, I know for a fact that the Tsushima wildcats also have been, you know, many people are pointing out that they're in great decline so that they're, they're even more of a risk than the Iriamote wildcats. So they're, they're, what makes them special is the, is, is, uh, the fact that they're rare, they're elusive. They're, the, what separates the two, even though they're both similar subspecies, they're similar subspecies from Bangalensis on the mainland, China. But um, the Iriamote had a much more specialized diet. And that's one of the reasons that it separated. 100,000 years ago, they, they dated that the, the separation from Bengalensis about 100,000 years, years ago. So Iriamote cats, and, and I think I read somewhere that the Iriamote cat, you know, the, they must have been introduced about 100,000 years ago somehow. Um, were there people back then? <laughs> I don't know, Mike. I don't know, Mike. Well, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if there were humans on the island. Certainly there were humans at that point. Um, yeah. it, it could, I guess. I mean, I'm just making stuff up, but it could have come over on uh, some sort of, you know, raft of floating material. That's, that's it, the, the whole, I don't want to get here quite yet, but the whole question of how and how quickly uh, islands get populated is just fascinating. And then the whole question of island ecology is really fascinating too. But let's hold off on that for just a minute. There's, I want to go back to something you said earlier. You said that uh, they were first discovered for sure in 1965. And, you know, we hear about that once in a while. I find it extraordinary that given how humans are pretty much in every nook and cranny on the planet, that, uh, that it took until 1965 to actually find a a reasonably large mammal. We're not talking about you know a plant that is a quarter of an inch high. Yeah, but I, I just find that really interesting. It raises a lot of questions. You know, did did you know as a as a non islander? I, I live in an island now, but I mean as a non Okinawan, uh, which is what they call the people there, or non Iriamotean. Um, we would have to go and you know follow the threads of one of your books and and find out what is the what is the cultural history of the people there and you know how did their culture evolve on this island over time way back long before 1965 and where did the you know is there is there a mythology it's obviously the japanese language is you'd have to speak the japanese language well or have somebody who did and you know be able to trust their interpretations and and uh and track it back and find out did they did they did they know about the cat even though you know the white man for example even if it's a japanese person from honshu didn't come down and quote discover the cat until 1965 so it could have it could have in oral tradition it could have existed you know in the in the in the the memory of the people for a long long time we i don't know that so but yeah, so somebody came along in 1965 and said, "Well, there is a there is a species here, and it's they named it Iriamotensis, so it was Bengalensis Iriamotensis, and that's um, what is it? The you know, their Philidae is the uh, family, 
and Felinae is the family, Prionel lurusus is the genus, species is Bengalensis, and then subspecies was, or species at the time was Iria motensis, but they've now decided through genetic coding and all that, that, that or testing, that it's a, it's a subspecies. It's very, very closely related to the leopard cat, as I said. So anyway, that there it is. And um, one of the ways that they knew that there were cats there was because they were getting killed. And this is the problem. This is the reason why these two cats are so highly endangered. Tsushima, well, Tsushima Island is, is, is larger than Iriamote. And the population there is significantly higher. I think it's closer to 25,000. It might even be 49,000. I don't remember the number. But so that human development on Tsushima wildcat on Tsushima Island is much more substantial, which is one of the reasons why the Tsushima wildcat is more endangered also they thought that the the as i said the tsushima island is split in two so they thought the the cat had disappeared from the southernmost island so they didn't take any steps there to to try to educate the people and and take efforts to try to preserve the cat or conserve the cat you know protect it which they did with the iriamote cat and they have done with the tsushima cat in the northern island of tsushima and then, and, and part of the, you know, one of the things that kills the most cats has been since the 1970s, automobiles. And, you know, like any, any history of ecological preservation or natural preservation that we could look at, Derek, you know, the efforts that were made to preserve this cat in the beginning and even now, you know, are very specious. And, and by that, you've got people that, are in love with the cat and, and will go to great lengths to make sure the cat is protected. But then you've got conflicting interests of, you know, all your usual culprits, which, you know, we can get into. And um, let's see a few more notes about the, the, the nature of the cats themselves. They're, they're like, you know, a tabby tan with spotted black spots and round face and they, they're nocturnal. The Iriamote cat diet was much more, um, restricted, which made the cat much more, it had to adapt in a different way to its environment. And the environment is, is coastal, coastal subtropical rainforest, mangrove forests, uh, you know, offshore, you've got these, or at least you did, you have these beautiful popsicle blue seas with diverse corals, of course, coral and, and, and fishing all have their own issues that we could talk about, but that's not the focus. So and the the uh, the cat lived in the zones closest to the shore, but not on the shore in the mangrove habitat. And when they, for example, they classified a national park out of Iriamote soon in the early 70s because they found the cat. And then so many people, they decided even at the top level up to the, you know, the the, the emperor and the emperor's family in Japan that they needed to protect this cat or at least celebrate it, which is more what they did that suddenly they've got their hands on, you know, figuratively, they got their hands on this rare species that only exists on an island in Japan and the world is paying attention. So they first they designated a nat national park, Iriamote National Park in 1974 or 75, I think it was. And what do you think? Well, the cat didn't live in the park. The cat didn't live at all in the park. The cat lived in completely different zones where, you know, ecological zones where which were mangrove and, and coastal zones. And the park itself was more mountainous. 
Somewhere around 2004, they expanded the Iriamote National Park to include another island near Iriamote, which also then incorporated the aquatic ecosystems. But for a long time, it was just in, 19, in the mid-90s when I was in Japan, it was, from my point of view, it was a scandal and a joke at the same time. You know, the cats didn't live in the park and there was all this hype and talk about the Iriamote National Park. So the cats, I started to talk about the Irimote cats diet. They will eat, um, they eat certain birds that are found in Asia, uh, shorebirds, for example, long-legged shorebirds, and certain species of small mammals. Uh, they'll eat bats. There's, a, there's a, several species of bats on the island that they'll eat. And frogs, which is unfortunate because at some point, one another problem that these two species of subspecies of cat face is the introduction of non-native species and so at some point this rare toad was introduced or somehow made it to Iriamote and the cats started eating these toads they figured out I don't know how they figured that out but the toad was poisonous to the cat and so there was a big problem there domestic cats on Iriamote were another problem. The cats, there was minimal, but some inbreeding. But the bigger problem was the uh, the Iriamote cats were becoming infected by a feline immunodeficiency virus that the domestic cats were carrying. And the Iriamote cats, who did not live in the national park in the wildest part of the, the island, would go to the dump and, and be feeding on, you know, human scraps and stuff. And they'd run into other cats and, and through the dump and through the other cats, they, they started to pick up this virus. So one of the successful things that's been done is they have a, on Iriamote, they have eliminated, I'm told they've eliminated and they report that they've completely eliminated the domestic cat population, which is, uh, you know, for the most part in terms of preservation of this wild cat, fantastic. If you're a cat lover, I don't know how you'd feel about that. But I mean, if you're a domestic cat lover only. So the uh, the Tsushima cat does face the problem of domestic cats diseases and and um, also inbreeding with domestic cats, even though it's really minimal. The uh, the Iriamote and the Tsushima cats are are like like pandas, extremely uh difficult to breed extremely hostile to to their mates at times and extremely hostile to of course the males will be very hostile to other males and females can can be very hostile to others when they're when they're breeding when they're gestating or carrying kittens for example so the cat itself is an obstreperous little creature <laughs> And that's another reason you got to love it. You know, how did, you, you know, we'll come back to that. You said, but how did these cats get on this island like this and what makes them special and that sort of thing? And, um, well, one of the things I was just looking up is that the, the it seems that their reproductive uh, rate is fairly slow because I was just looking up how many kittens they have per litter and the, uh, the Iromote cat has, one to three, and the Tsushima cat. It says their litters are generally two or three. So that's yeah, pretty. Small. That's a pretty slow rate of reproduction for a cat. They didn't bother. Um, I don't know if that's the right language or or, or the right um, contextualization, but they with with the Iriamote cat, 
the cat specialist group in the world, the IUCN, International Union of Conservation of Nature, which itself is a is a very compromised body. We could talk about that whole politicization of that. But the IUCN and the cat specialist group did not want to work with Japan and Japan, Japan Japanese uh, biologists and conservation bio, wildlife conservationists did not want to institute a captive breeding program for the Iriamote cat because they felt that um, inbreeding depression would be too much of a problem. That the cats are there's such a small number left that uh, it doesn't make any sense to try to do inbreed to try to do captive breeding because you'd have to take the cats from the wild and there's a better chance they'll live in the wild if you don't take them from there. And so, given the compromising situation of you know what happens when you breed animals that are closely related to each other, they didn't bother trying to do that. They did try to do that with the Tsushima wildcat. They tried an inbreeding. They they are still running a, a captive breeding program, and they have successfully managed to get several Tsushima wildcats to breed and have kittens. Uh, but they have not successfully been able to introduce a Tsushima wildcat back into the wild, which makes the whole captive breeding program sort of moot. There's a whole nother, you know, there's a whole nother um, thread we could go off on having to do with what I just said, which is how institutions, scientists, and the Western, especially the Western, you know, scientific apparatus, which is closely fused with a military industrial complex and part of it, will go into a place like this and has and does. And uh, in particular, I'm thinking of what they did in Gabon when I was researching Gabon. And they sent all these experts in, trapped all these species that you know, and 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 euthanized what's chloroformed many of them in jars that they could, and 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 of course not the ones they couldn't, but they they were after DNA, and now we've got beyond the DNA, you know, the the the, the whole commoditization and profits to be made from DNA research and DNA and cloning and all of the stuff that they're doing out there, which we don't even know the you know the the beginnings of really, they're they're starting to use and want these species for stem cell research, which has become one of the most profitable things on the planet. So back to the Iriamote and the Tsushima cats. Um, Iriamote Island is is now, a, it does have a national park and, and that national park does include some of the zones where the cats live. And the cats in Iriamote, uh, unfortunately, the biggest problem you have going now today is tourism. So 2004, this huge Japanese Sogashosha-related corporation, Sogashosha is what they call the uh, the most powerful corporations in Japan, and you know them all, or you know many of them, Sumitomo, uh, Mitsubishi, Saito, Sony, these corporations that are stripping the Pacific Northwest timber uh, are also the ones that set up a, you know, related to them, set up this... Uh, Hoshino Resort on Iriamote Island. And Iriamote was seeing 300,000 visitors a year, and that was beginning to increase substantially because of this Hoshino Resort. And one of the things that's happened since just in the last six months, eight months, nine months, is that the government of Japan or the government of the island, I'm not sure which, it could be the prefectural government of the island, has declared that they will only allow uh up to 1200 i think it's 1200 people a month which is 
if you multiply it times 12 is way less than 300,000 a year. It may be more than 12, might be, might, might be more than that. But anyway, it's a substantial decrease in the amount of tourists who can go to the island. Now, this is causing problems. You've got the tourists and the tourism industry fighting with the locals in some cases. And we don't hear about that. That's not reported in the in the in the in the in the shiny stories of ecotourism that you'll see produced by Westerners on their little, you know, influencers and that kind of thing. And we don't see any discussion of what it means to the local people. What does cat mean to the local people? What you know? What are these preservation efforts? Who are the most significant preservationists with respect to the Iriamote and the Tsushima cats? And that would be the local people. They've become sensitized to the fact that they have this special resource. It's not only the island, it's not only the other endangered species, but it's in particular this cat that everybody, you know, really falls in love with, you know. So so they're reducing the number of tourists on paper, but it's not a law. The government has suggested that they reduce the number of tourists substantially, but do you think Koshino Corporation, with all of their resorts all over the world, and in particular in Iriamote, are going to reduce the number of tourists going to their luxury resort? Uh, I don't think so. So that brings up all of this other, you know, political conflict and grandstanding, which we could, you know, which, which is what I was looking into in the early 90s, you know, how WWF Japan had been compromised by all of its directors or many of its directors coming from the biggest businesses in Japan who are committing the most atrocities around the world, whether it's environmental or involved in the genocide of the Panan people in Sarawak Island in Borneo, for example. So, so these are all the, these are the issues uh, that at present they're trying, they put up signs, they're trying to get people to slow down on the roads. The local people do have a good sensitivity to driving, you know, and, and awareness of the, the Iriamote cats running up on the road at night, but tourists don't slow down. I'm wondering if we can, thank you for all that. I'm wondering if we can, if you can give people a quick primer on uh, island ecology, because the fact that they're on an island uh, is going to influence their, uh, their long-term, I mean, even, even excluding humans, being on an island does something to a species, does many things to species and to communities. And um, can you give people, I, I I don't know that I've ever, in all the 10 years I've been doing this or whatever, I've ever interviewed anybody specifically about that. Can you give people a five or 10 minute quick, quick and dirty introduction to island ecology? Sure. Um, way back long before anybody even conceived of anything. <laughs> <laughs> There was a, something called Sundaland, Sunda Shelf. This was a con like a continental formation that was that included Australia and and um, and uh, Malaysia and Indonesia and Borneo and Papua New Guinea, and it went all the way up to somewhere around, I believe, somewhere around Thailand. And this was one, you know, continental land formation, and that over the course of geological time split apart and broke up into what we know now as Thailand and. And Malaysia and Borneo and and uh, Bali and all of these the Philippines and all these other islands. Now the Japanese islands, for example, including Iriamote, were above the Sunda Shelf, the Sunda Land. Now let's look. Let's look at Madagascar, for example. Madagascar is a very, 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 very old island, and the old they researchers 
including as far back as, you know, um, the guy who went to the Galapagos. What was his name again? Origin Dar of a Species, Charles Darwin, and, and a guy named Wallace, a young kid, a, an obstreperous little guy named Wallace, who came along and challenged um, challenged Darwin just about the time that Darwin was going to release his, his uh, Origin of a Species with the same information. These two guys came to the conclusion that islands were the place to study biodiversity and study the origins of where we came from. And of course, back in the 1850s, 1860s, 1880s, for example, you know, you've got people who really, who would burn you at the stake if you said that uh, the animals didn't get onto an ark that was created by Noah. And that's what Wallace and, and um, Darwin were working on is they used islands as their vehicle to show how species were created and diversified and came about. So if we look at an island like Madagascar, at some point, Madagascar separated from the Sunda Shelf and became its own landform off the coast of Africa. And Madagascar is, is known as a continental island because it did that. It separated off as opposed to Iriamote, which I believe is an oceanic island. Now, Hawaii are oceanic islands, and uh, and uh, what's another? You know, some of the Indonesian islands are oceanic islands, which means that at some point in time, they rose from the ocean floor through volcanic activity, and at some point in time, the the volcanic rock, you know, grew plants and 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 species evolved and this sort of thing. Now, an oceanic island like Iriamote. Uh, starts with nothing and has everything to gain in terms of species. And an island like Madagascar had everything and started with everything and had everything to lose. So in the case of Madagascar, some species have already gone extinct. Other ones that came, you know, that would have been there uh, originally just couldn't manage to survive in the ecosystem. So, for example, lions and lions and elephants and giraffes didn't work on Madagascar, but instead you had the diversification, which came, which brought about things like, you know, lemurs and the fossa and you know those some of those cute little animals you'll see in those effing Disney movies, <laughs> like Madagascar. <laughs> so back to Iriamote. That's and another thing that Darwin and and this guy Wallace figured out was that the diversity of an island was also directly proportional to its size. So Madagascar is a pretty large island. Borneo is a huge island. And so the diversity of plants, animals, and other species on the, on the islands was substantial. And there was more capacity because there was more land and there were more ecological zones in which these creatures could diversify, inhabit, and, you know, genetically drift. And so Iriamote, being such a small island, didn't have that capacity. Somehow these cats and other species made it their way to, from in the case of Bengalensis, made its way to Iriamote from the mainland, whether it's on a floating piece of debris or whatever, or um, or brought over by the first people on somehow, you know, not domesticated per se, but it might have been brought over alive or a couple of them somehow from some people from the mainland, from tai Taiwan, for example, who knows. It, what's interesting is that there are not a lot of these cats on Taiwan. Bengalensis does exist on Taiwan, but it's, it's you know, Iriamote has diverged substantially to become its own unique little cat, even though it's not its own species. 
So the island ecology then is about, um, you know, diversification and and the um, the origins of species, how they come about, whether they do or don't survive. And if we if we apply that to Iriamote, the wildcat, it managed to occupy a niche, and that niche was in the mangrove coastal forests. However, it also thrives more substantially in the rice paddies that the people work, the agricultural fields that the people work. And that's where the people were seeing, that's where they knew that there were these wildcats. They didn't know them because they'd been in the forest. They didn't go in the forest. A lot of time, the forests, the, 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 uh, the mangrove forests are rather, it's a rather thick, hostile thing to, to try to go through if you've never tried. It's very difficult to get through the mangroves. The tide comes up and, you, you know, they're inaccessible at high tide. They're muddy and inaccessible at low tide. They're difficult for boats and that sort of thing. But the, the, on, the, on Iriamote, for example, there's also a very, very, very poisonous snake that the people steer away from. It's, it's like 10 times, the venom is 10 times more poisonous than, than a cobra. But the Iriamote wildcat adapted to this ecological zone eating with a different diet. It, it was eating reptiles and lizards and, and the birds that it could catch. And also working uh, the human zones where there was a lot of rats and mice. And managed over time to evolve and survive until, of course, the human population starts to get much, much greater and development and change comes along in the 50s, 60s, 70s, etc. And then even though the cat's been identified, it's still, you know, it's still facing almost imminent uh, extinction. For example, all that would take would be one episodic. Uh, some infectious disease comes along and because the inbreeding has been so substantial and there's no other population to draw from, it could eat and their, their genetics are so similar, it could easily wipe out the entire population, you know, in a week if that happened. So yeah. that was that was actually something I was hoping you would address also. And thank you for all that. That was something I was hoping you would address also about about island ecology that makes it different is that if you have a creature with multiple populations spread over an area, one uh, disease like that usually won't wipe out the population or one hurricane, one fire, you know, one, one, one cataclysmic event. Um, whereas if you have a fairly small area uh, that, you know, one, one cataclysmic event can spell the end for the species. And then one other thing I wanted to mention is the fact that they are. I mean, I recognize that there are members of the the this the, the small smallish cats through uh, on mainlands too, but a famous part of island uh, ecology is that you can be uh, there's not going to be any tigers wander through to eat you, or there's not going to be any. Uh, you know, there, there's all sorts of islands in the Pacific that have been devastated by the introduction of rats or house cats or brown snakes um, because they developed for... There was one species uh, on some island in the South Pacific that uh, it was completely wiped out because they put in a lighthouse and the lighthouse owner had a pet cat and that pet cat wiped out the entire species because 
the they were ground dwelling because there had never been any predators and you're never going to have predators i mean i'm sorry you're never going to have an an a bird on land i mean i'm sorry on a mainland that has never encountered a a feline species yeah that's all very apropos the you know you're right on the uh another thing with the, you know if we just talk about Yerimote or Tsushima, I, I prefer to talk about the Yerimote a little bit because even though the Tsushima is more endangered, sort of, <laughs> it's hard to equate them because there's more human development on Tsushima. And and I guess it seems like the awareness is not there yet to, 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 to make sure that Tsushima wildcats are going to survive. Whereas there's a, there's, there's a good chance the Yerimote wildcat will make it as long as an episodic doesn't come along, like you said, like I mentioned, or you mentioned, and, and, and another, you know, when you were talking, I was thinking, yeah, if, if, a, if a tsunami came along, it could wipe out every last cat on the island. You know, something like that, anything, it, it, or, an, or an, um, a volcanic eruption that destroyed their habitat. That's the end of the Uriamote wildcat. And, you know, at this point, though, people are still being sensitized not to trap. They trap other creatures and they catch the wildcat, you know, accidentally, and they're trying to, you know, convince them to change their methods so that they don't trap wildcats, either Tsushima or Iriamote. Another thing is, you know, and this is the problem with the modern world, you know, for years I fought against lead shot in the shooting range near my home. And lead shot is, and I'm, it's not, I'm not opposed to hunting. I'm not opposed to, to guns. I'm not, that's not the issue. The issue is that lead shot distributed into the environment. For example, ducks will feed in the, in the mud and the, and because they're filter feeders, they'll fill themselves up with lead and die. And then along comes the, the, uh, you know, the bobcat and eats the dead duck on the land. And then along comes the bald eagle and eats the, the bobcat. And so it goes right up to the food chain. And that could happen with Iriamote if, if um if one species there that the Iriamote cat feeds on becomes somehow compromised, then the, it could also wipe out the entire population of Iriamote cats. Both Iriamote and Tsushima wildcats, by the way, are apex predators. Tiny little cats, but they're the biggest, you know, predatory species on the on the island, and they're at the top of their own little, you know, their own little endemic ecological niche. No, I know you said this earlier, but can you can you say again approximately how many of each of those subspecies exist? Yeah, there's there's at present eighty to one hundred, eighty to one hundred and ten Iriamote, and they're saying there's a eighty to one hundred, eighty ninety to one hundred Tsushima, but I don't believe it. I I I they were down to seventy, and when I was there, and I've seen more and more reports about how their population is declining so that could be a pr stunt of some kind and you know, while I, we're, yeah go ahead go ahead uh, i was going to go off a little tangent but well i i know you already said that we don't know but can you even if it's just a completely wild guess can you can you say what what a a healthy population might be on islands of those size cuz i was also looking up and I know you said this too, but um, uh, Ir Iriamote is not tiny. Um, so so what what would be a healthy population for both of those uh, both of those species? Yeah, subspecies. 
in comparison to Madagascar, Iriamoti is tiny, but in, it's not tiny in the sense that it's a couple hundred square miles or a circumference of, you know. Oh, but wait, that that is the total size, and that do, that doesn't include stuff that's not good habitat form. So that's not the question, I guess. I'm I'm asking the wrong question. The question should be, uh, what would be a healthy population of given the the habitat potential of the island? Well. You know, maybe that's a question for our discussion about cheetahs. <laughs> I can't answer that, you know, with any any sense of integrity. I'm not a geneticist. Uh, I could do some research and figure it out. But, I mean, if you think about it, 100 members of a large mammal population like this, I mean, we're not talking about fruit flies that, you know, reproduce in seconds or minutes or whatever they their their lifespan is like a day or something like that i don't know what it is but so the the, the lifespan of these cats is like six to ten years at the most i think the most they've had live is they they've been able to document up to nine or something like that nine years old so but how many you know it's it's the uh this this gets into population biology and population dynamics and overshoot you know that great book by um what's his name uh William Catton. Yeah, William Catton's Overshoot, which is which people have, if your listeners haven't read it, it's a fascinating read, whether or not you agree with it. But how many, how many cats would the island, for example, if we remove the entire population of humans from Iriamote and all the tourism and everything that's killing these cats and just left them to their own devices on the island, you know, how much would their population expand before it might get to the point where there's a population bottleneck due to the genetic inbreeding depression problem. And then, and that's where the animals just then become susceptible to, well, they just, their, their immune system becomes compromised and it doesn't mean that it has to be some episodic, some disease introduction. They could just have a immuno response that no longer allows them to survive in their own environment. If the population reaches that bottleneck point. I don't know what those numbers would be, but certainly it could support the island could support quite a few more cats if they weren't being killed at the rate of, you know, five to 10 a year or whatever. It's I believe that's a you know a fairly accurate number, but it might be more or less. So I can't really answer that question any better than that. So we're we've got about seven or eight minutes left. And um, A, are there more things you want to say about the cats that I've not given you the chance? I was just looking up another interesting thing about the uh, Iremote cat that's very, that's kind of weird. Uh, I'm, I'm quoting, sorry, Wikipedia. Um, when eating birds that are larger than a dusky thrush, most type of cats will pluck the feathers and then eat it. But the Iremote cat eats even large birds whole without removing the feathers. Also, unlike other cats, the Iremote cat does not kill its prey immediately by breaking the spinal cord. Instead, it holds the animal in its mouth until it stops moving. Most yeah, two two fascinating aspects of the remote cat. I didn't know that about the feathers or the spinal cord. Well, I didn't either um, until just now. Uh, it'd be really interesting to track down, you know, what other cats either in the same uh, genus uh, or had the same had the same you know tendencies as opposed to you know eating the bird whole. Yeah. So anyway, um. A, are there things that I haven't given you the chance to say that you want to say, some cool little factlets or something, 
and and B, so there's three things. B, you've talked quite a bit about efforts to protect them, but what more would you like to see? And C, just anything you can generically to help people fall in love with whatever strange and wondrous beings are near where they live. Well, there's an example of a video online where a couple of guys show up at Iriamote Wild National Park. You know, they're just influencers. They're making videos about the, they're, they're making themselves out to be these American, amazing, amazing, uh, you know, adventurers. Oh, we're putting our lives at risk looking for sea turtles and there's wild snakes in the forest. And, you know, good intention, but the wrong kind of thing to do. You know, Iriamote is known as the Galapagos of the East. And. And Tsushima isn't much different than that, even though it's more populated and it's a little quite a bit north, more northerner so that it's not subtropical. But um, Iriamote has, you know, crested serpent eagles and these poisonous snakes I mentioned and blue coral populations and banded the banded sea crate, for example, which is a very another very dangerous snake. Oh, I think I mistakenly said that the poisonous snake on land was the one that's 10 times uh, more lethal than the cobra but it's actually the this sea snake that exists right off the coast and you know i mean exploring mangroves is a fascinating thing to do but these two guys who went in and made this video they didn't know nothing about the place in fact one of them openly states it's his first time out of the united states and they don't take into account the people they're 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 just it's just hype and it's 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 influencing and it's offensive and it's it's a very white thing to do but there, you know, if you wanted to support this project, for example, you know, not everybody can do this, but a, a few of us who are listening, for example, might go fly to Japan and figure out what we can do to help. And one of the biggest problems we have there as anywhere else is the dis, disjoint, disjunction between the, the proposals and the efforts for conservation and what what really is happening. And we're talking here about economy of scale, which is really what you asked about the cat itself. If the economy of scale of the cat was greater, it would get to a point where it could the island couldn't support it. And if it gets too small, it's just going to die off because of inbreeding. And the economy of scale in Japan is that, you know, the cat survived there fine until more and more people started showing more and more people, the population itself, the local domestic population increased the island population. But then the number of tourists up to 300,000 on this tiny little island. That's economy of scale. And Japan is not, you know, people want to think, and that's what they say in this video, these two guys too, about Irimote. They say Japan is a place where the people rever nature and they always have nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, and they, they make a comment about how the Japanese uh, are protecting their forests. The Japanese Sogoshosha, like any other you know country in the world, and and these are some of the worst, are stripping the rainforest faster than, you know, I mean, I can't even you can't even quantify the rate at which these giant Sogoshosha are destroying the planet. And so you know how to help the Iriamote cat. If people came up with an innovative way to stop the traffic on Iriamote Island completely, that would be substantial. If you could go over there and introduce a, a form of, quote, ecotourism that is truly, you know, meant to protect the, 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 the endemic wildlife and the, and, the, and the stuff that isn't so shiny and pretty and, and that we don't fall in love with so quickly, like the rare plants, that would be substantial. It's a small island. Why not ban cars completely? Well, what would that take? That would be that would take fighting Niti, 
which is the Ministry of Industry, Trade, and and uh, Transport, or whatever it is. And that's these are the guys who are on the boards of the so-called conservation organizations, W IUCN and WWF, and and it comes down to grassroots activism, which is really critical. And that ha that's what people have to do in their local areas. Is you know, I had a guy from a family, a, a man and a woman from Bangladesh visit me here on the island recently. And this guy knew more of the of the LBJs than I did. And I've studied LBJs my entire life, little brown jobs, those little birds that I can't quite distinguish from each other. He knew them all. And why did this guy from Bangladesh know them? Because to him, they're exotic. And to me, they're something that I see every day. And so if you see the natural world around you in your own home as exotic, not even exotic, I hate that word. It's not about being exotic. It's just it's about sinking into a deeper spiritual level and appreciating your place or the or or the place where you are before people came along and what there is to offer and what it could be rather than what it's becoming well i think that's that, that reminds me of a couple of things one of them is uh that i think it might have been wallace stegner it might not have been but i think it was wallace stegner who said one of the most radical things we can do is stay home, by which he doesn't mean stay in your house. He means get to know where you live. And um, the other thing I wanted to mention is that, oh, when I wrote a book on zoos and how zoos are, are really bad, one of the lessons they teach us is that the animals are all just waiting for us there. But I I fully agree that children need to encounter wild animals, but I think that where they should really encounter them is at home. And if you want your child to experience wild nature, you need to live such that wild nature wants to live around you. And that can include, it's everywhere. It's, I know, I, I have a friend who feeds pigeons in New York City. And, you know, that's a form of wild nature. And there's, I, I'm I'm just I'm just riffing on riffing RIFF on the point you were just making about them being LBJs to you, but um, you know for him they were exotic and it's you know I, it, it's so funny I lived here I'm such a and you know I walk through the forest all the time here I've lived here for almost 25 years and I didn't realize that the plants that I was calling Doug firs half of them are Sitka spruce and they don't even look alike. You know, mm -hmm. one of the things yeah. that I often say is, oh, oh, here's a great example, and then I'll shut up, which is if I say, you know, Angelina Jolie or Brad Pitt or or Taylor Swift, most people would know those names. We can all name famous people, but how many people can name 10 species of edible plants and fungi within 100 yards of their house? Yeah, and absolutely. You nailed it. And so one of the reasons we don't protect the places we live is because we don't live here. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, just that's that's that, that's all goes down to, you know, gets back to is that what to me has become, you know, a critical philosophy in, in a spiritual sense of my of my life is trying to really nurture a sense of place. And, you know, and that means stopping and listening. For example, how I've been doing that in the last, just the last couple of days is I go out in my rowboat and I just float on the ocean around the island or in the, you know, what's called the reach between the two islands here. And, and it's quiet 
and I, I see things I don't see if I have a motor, you know, I mean, and, and it's the same thing if I walk through the forest here, my a friend and I just took a walk the other day and we were looking for deer and it was remarkable what happened when we just stopped and sat for, you know, an hour with and meditated without making any noise a giant buck walked right up to my to my nephew <laughs> anyway yes sense of place you don't have to go anywhere to do that you just have to go outside and that brings me to the reminds me of you know how important like you said it is that we get education to involve not drag queens but nature you know last child in the wood is woods is, a, is an important book in my opinion it's called last child in the woods and it's about nature deficit disorder, which is that kids are being given too much electronics and too much indoor time and all these other things that are just, in my opinion, bad for bad for them. Yeah, so. I, I agree. And I'll say one more thing and then you say one more thing and then we'll quit. And the one more thing I'm going to say is even 30 years ago, I knew someone who was an, who was a college student who was also, what do you call them? A teacher's aide at, a, at an elementary school. So they go help out as part of their education. And one of the things that she did was take students to a botanical garden. And these students were running terrified from butterflies because they thought they would get stung. And uh, that's, that's inconceivable. I mean, my childhood was spent, you know, Four to four to eight to nine hours a day outside. Um, you know, I mean, my mom would just say, "Go, you know, go away here, and then and come back at lunch, and then come back again at dinner." Um, yeah. And one more thing, and then then you say something, and I'll quit. Which is that <laughs> um, uh, I read this is probably ten years ago. I read a study that the average kid these days spends fifteen minutes outside. A um, day. Yeah, a day. That includes walking that to much? and from places. Wow. Well, that includes that includes transportation. That includes walking to and from the school bus, etc. That's pretty grim. Yeah, that's pretty grim. Shut it off. Turn it. Turn it off. Break it down. Little, you know, grinding compound in the orifices of those machines. That kind of thing. And then go outside. <laughs> I don't have anything else to add. It's okay. been wonderful talking to you, Derek. I really appreciate it. And I hope people will take a moment and and, uh, and reflect on their own local environment and what they can do to change the world for the better. Gandhi said, everything you do will be meaningless, but you must do it. And I firmly believe that. And that well, can be interpreted, mul interpreted multiple ways. So, Well, thank you so much for all that. And thank you for your work in the world. And I would like to thank listeners for listening. My guest today has been Keith Harmon Snow. This is Derek Gentleman of Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network.